normally when we perceive something like visually, auditorily, it goes in through that sense and then goes to the part of the brain where you think about it for a while and then the body reacts to it. But in the case of fight, flight, or freeze, or even extreme anger or insult, that'll be short-circuited so that it will go into, I think it's the thalamus, but right back down into the amygdala without any rational thought. And so it triggers this fight, flight, or freeze system and floods your system with adrenaline. And the studies all show, you know, as a gross overgeneralization of my neuroscience knowledge, that your back goes up and you're no longer engaging your rational brain. So trying to get to a rational agreement is going to be next to impossible. So one of the goals for mediators is to not let it escalate to that point. Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. We have one of our returning champions, CC Pays. Welcome back to the show, CC. It's good to see you, Bob, as always. I was going through some of your prior visits. You were here with Jolie Weinberg last fall when you were dubbed the Queens of Mediation. But I note that you are one of our earliest guests, that more than five years ago, you appeared on Everyday Law, and I think we were both sort of calmer, and we spoke in calm tones and respectful tones, and it's sort of fun that we've evolved to being more excitable. Well, you know, with age comes wisdom and excitability. (laughs) There you go. So I was looking through the State Bar Summit, whatever you want to call it, curriculum vitae, and one of the things I noticed is uh, there is more associated with, like, for example, Campbell Killifer's given a talk, whom I know and think well of, preparing your client for an in-person or Zoom mediation. And then there's Jill Eisner and Karen Wilson doing how to use mediation services to enhance your law practice. And there's, I mean, it's just a multitude. There, there are five separate things that, in essence, digging deep into how to, attorneys get the most from their mediators with with Doug Furlong, who I think is going to be on the show shortly. And then your program, which unfortunately is at the exact same time as my own at the State Bar Summit, which is entitled Getting the Best Out of Any Negotiation. And I just think that that's a wonderful title because that's what not just lawyers, but everybody's looking for in their life. How did you come up with this notion of getting the best out of a negotiation? Well, the the key thing that I've learned over the past 20, 21 years that I've been doing mediation and I've been researching different things like communication, neuroscience and things, is that we tend to not look for the best opportunities and the best way to get what we're looking for. And it's more than just the getting to yes, which is the famous book from the Harvard professors from years ago. It's really about shifting our own perceptions of how we negotiate. And so my good friend, Gina Santoro, who's a clinical psychologist, and I have done different programs over the years. And I just thought, why don't we do this from a lawyer's perspective, a mediator's perspective, and a therapist's perspective? And so I represent the head of the lawyer slash mediator, and she is the mental health professional. And it's really about changing our approach to communication in many ways, which I think all of the other programs that you just spoke about, that's what they're geared towards too, changing the conversation from adversarial to more collaborative, more how do we get both as much as of what we both want as we can. I mean, it's funny as the arc of our career starts to 
go downward, it seems like mediation and, and, and this sort of thing is ever more important. I agree. And I think it's also a matter of recognition by lawyers and the judiciary that there are better ways to deal with these conflicts than just to be adversarial and spend all the money to get to a court and kind of roll the dice. And that it leaves people happier with the system itself if they're able to have a say in how their conflict is resolved. There was a perception, you know, my line of work is essentially representing injured people in malpractice cases and car accidents and that kind of thing. And there was always a, a sort of perception that if both sides were unhappy after a mediation and a case settled, that meant it was the optimal mediation because the insurance company paid too much and maybe the plaintiff reduced what they expected to get. And I guess that doesn't seem to be the watchword anymore, that it's more like if both parties can leave with at least something of a smile on their face, that may be more the hoped for expectation. Yeah, and I agree with that, the latter. It is a little bit harder when you have insurance companies involved because they have a bureaucracy that's been in place and a process that's been in place for years. So oftentimes it's not to the bitter end until you get to really negotiate a settlement from those perspectives. But most of the other mediations, clearly you could start with the negotiation between the parties themselves. It could then move to negotiations with their attorneys present and then come to a mediated setting if things haven't settled. And all of that can be a better way to really allow people to have all of their concerns addressed, not just those that the courts can address. So how much of this increased emphasis do you think is a COVID and post-COVID phenomenon, and how much is other things that were at work before COVID ever came upon us? I think it's definitely COVID increased the pace at which mediation and alternative dispute resolution has grown because of the delays now in having the cases heard. The court's emphasis is on getting the criminal cases done because they have the time standards, which have a name, but I don't know the the name it's speedy trial. Well, a speedy trial, but there's a buzzword for it. Yeah. And so I think that a lot of the non-criminal cases are looking for alternative ways to get things done. And, you know, part of that can be mediation, but also I think lawyers can use mediation style skills to really maximize negotiations that they have on behalf of their clients. So do you still do active family law cases in terms of representing husbands, wives, children, and that kind of thing? Or is your practice pretty much exclusively dispute resolution kind of things? It's almost exclusively dispute resolution. I do the trainings for me people who want to become mediators. Now, is this just for lawyers and judges or is this for no, ordinary mortals? Ordinary mortals. Anyone can participate in mediation in the state of Maryland. We don't put limits on who can mediate. There is an age limitation, I believe. There used to be an educational one, and that was revised years ago. Age meaning old or young? Well, 18, I think, was the age. I'll have to look again. Isn't that funny? Okay. I've in so long because I'm so far beyond, and all my trainees are so far beyond the age. I think it was 21. Okay conversation around it going to 18, but I don't believe it was ever revised that way. So, but it is anyone from any field, any educational level can become a mediator. 
and work with people to try and resolve conflict without going into the adversarial litigation process. So is there a specific mediator certification of some sort? Not in the state of Maryland. There are some groups that do certifications on their own, but there's no statewide certification program. When you take a training, you get a certificate that you then present to the court to say, I've taken the training required under the rules. And that's what we have now. Do you think it would be desirable to have a certification in Maryland? I will tell you, in my experience, the problem with certification is that there are so many different professions and people represented. It's an interdisciplinary process. And so I don't know how you would come up with a certification process that would recognize all of that. You know, I'm aware of several that do the process, but I'm not sure that the process they use really captures the concept of there's a wide range of of how people do mediation and there's no one way to do it. My theory and the way that I train is we need to decide who we are and how we can best use the tools of mediation or alternate dispute resolution to help the people in the room. And that could mean being more transformative. It could mean being more analytical. All of it depends on the people in the room and what they need. Could you give us some examples when you say transformative or analytical? I'm not sure that that hits me squarely in understanding what you mean. A true transformative process is one where you are simply the guide. The people in the room are the ones that control the content, the process, the direction it goes. Whereas then there are different names for different what I call models or platforms of mediation. Most mediators are are in what we call the facilitative or problem-solving model, which is you, you listen, you use all your tools, but you take a little bit more control over the process so that people aren't going down what I call little rabbit holes of side issues that aren't really going to help them get to a resolution. And then analytical is at the other end where you basically use separate meetings and ask questions like, well, what's your best case scenario? What's your worst case scenario? What do you think is going to work? What do you think is not going to work? And that's just shy of the evaluative process, which is more settlement conferences or neutral case evaluation, where the mediator, oftentimes a retired judge, will say, this is what I would do if if I were deciding this case, not as directly as that, but using that concept of this is your best case scenario, not what do you think your best case scenario is. Which of those do you fall into typically? In family law, I always try and start on a more transformative process where I'm listening more and seeing where they go. And then I move into a more problem solving where I'm starting to contain and really getting them to focus on the issues. I Do people re- tend to agree on what the problems are? Depends. Okay. <laughs> Oftentimes, one of the things I we're presenting at, at this program at the legal summit is the concept of everybody has their own worldview and everyone has their own perspective. And so the same facts can be viewed very differently by different people based on their confirmation biases, their you know, how they were raised, what they believe. It kind of explains the extremes of political um, discourse these days. Um, We can look at the same exact facts, but interpret it completely differently. And that's, that's where sitting back and recognizing that we have our own kind of biases 
in the world that we need to kind of listen more to hear where we're more common versus more adversarial. I would imagine domestic family law situations, that's harder for people to do. You know, you've been in a relationship with somebody and had whatever issues it is that bring you to the table and probably it's much more inflammatory. It can be, but I've had dissolution of partnerships, you know, remodeling contract cases that have been just as emotionally volatile. It's about the underlying relationship or what the expectations were that weren't met. So they can be, you know, but as far as family law, there is an underlying relationship if there are children, minor children, even if there are older children, that I think people want to try and maintain. In your business, it's like a one and done. Right. Insurance company is never going to be dealing with that person again. And the plaintiff is, is probably never going to go back to whoever it was that created the problem for him in the first place, a doctor or a bad driver kind of things. One of the things we had done in an earlier show today, and I mentioned to you this concept of the reptile and, you know, and we got talking about the limbic system and you immediately said, oh yes, the limbic system. And I, I'm intrigued that it's something that I guess comes into play in the sorts of cases you mediate. And I just wondered if you could discourse on that for just a second. Well, one of the biggest things that we still have in ourselves is the limbic system, which is the fight, flight, or freeze alarm system that we have. Normally, when we perceive something like visually, auditorially, it goes in through that sense and then goes to the part of the brain where you think about it for a while and then the body reacts to it. But in the case of fight, flight, or freeze, or even extreme anger or insult, that'll be short-circuited so that it will go into, I think it's the thalamus, but right back down into the amygdala without any rational thought. And so it triggers this fight, flight, or freeze system and floods your system with adrenaline. And the studies all show, you know, as a gross overgeneralization of my neuroscience knowledge, that your back goes up and you're no longer engaging your rational brain. So trying to get to a rational agreement is going to be next to impossible. So one of the goals for mediators is to not let it escalate to that point, to use different tools to keep people in the room calm and focused on what are your goals? What is it you really want in the end? Yeah, I understand that this piece was hugely frustrating for you, or you're very angry about it, but can we look at it from a where do we go from here perspective? So I'm constantly trying to make sure that the person in the room hasn't become so upset that they can no longer really participate in the conversation. Are there strategies you employ for that? Absolutely. And some of them are just the way that I use my body language. I stay calm. I use a very calm voice. I may try to use, you know, let's wait. I got it. We're not going to talk over each other. Let's kind of, I need to listen. Therefore, let me hear what's being said. And then in family law cases, I try not to use it. I use it a lot more in civil cases for mediation, but the caucus where you meet separately with the person and if there are attorneys present. And that can de-escalate things because the biggest problem with triggering the limbic system is studies show it takes 20 to 60 minutes for the wow. person to calm back down and to be able to engage their rational brain because of the flood of chemicals, the adrenaline going through your system. So 
I try to see when, you know, when things are starting to get tense by looking at body language and obviously tone can carry a lot of impact in communication. And then I'd separate them and try and get people to calm down. And I'm listening to you. What is it you're trying to say? Let me see if I hear what you're saying kind of situation. So one of the conversations we also had in the pre-show was interest on the part of our able producer in getting mediation training. And I just wondered if you had any suggestions of avenues that non-lawyers might hypothetically take to enhance their mediation abilities. Well, usually taking at least the basic 40-hour mediation training is important. And where do you get that? Well, there are various places. They can go to my website at agreeonit.com and see what I'm offering. Okay, run that one by agreeonit.com. Agreeonit.com, yes. Okay, that's a, I like that one. Perfect for a mediator. Okay. Community colleges offer it. There are other groups on the, you know, in Maryland that offer the program. You know, you can Google mediation training and find any number of people that provide the training. I would imagine some are better than others, however. Yes, there's always that anywhere you are. But it, getting the basic training, I think, is really about shifting your thoughts from a more competitive conversation to a more non-competitive or what there's a woman, Sharon Ellison, who, who did a great deal of work in the area of, of how we communicate and how we change it. And she calls it taking the war out of our words and getting into non-defensive communication, meaning we're not going to do things that makes the other person defensive. Because if they have to defend themselves, then oftentimes, boom, they start to get their back up. And now they're starting to look at escalating into fight, flight, or freeze. So it really is about how to approach people in a way that's more open and, you know, let's talk about this versus, you know, more of an aggressive perspective. So let's get down to the meat of getting the best out of any negotiation. And what's the basic premise of how to do that? I would say make sure that from the very beginning, you as an attorney and your client are clear about what the range of goals are. I mean, as you indicated, there used to be a concept of if both people are unhappy, then somewhere in the middle was where the, they should have landed anyway. But having your client understand before you go in what the best case and what the worst case scenario could be gives them a playing field. As the mother of a soccer player, of two soccer players, I always talk in terms of the field and anywhere on the field would be, you know, a, a good place to have a conversation. The problem is if you're way outside the field, it makes negotiation difficult because the other person may just shut down and say, well, if that's what you're looking for, forget about it. If you want a million dollars for a $10,000 case. Exactly. You know, in, a, in an alimony case, I want $10,000 a month. Well, the other side only makes $120,000 a year. So you can't take their entire income. Exactly. And taxes will come first. <laughs> so how prevalent is both parties being on the field of play? I mean, I always describe cases as having a continuum of values. You know, probably the outside you can get if everything went your way is $200,000, but you'll get at least $20,000. And, you know, you kind of have a continuum. And, and I just wonder, is there a similar such thing in your field of negotiation? The answer to that is there should be. There isn't often the best conversation and what about this and brainstorming won't move. But if they are prepared in family law, oftentimes the attorneys don't come. 
So it's even more important that the uh, clients are prepared to move forward. How do they do that absent a lawyer? In family law, the concept is it's more about the parties making the decision, especially when it comes to children. There's mandatory referral to mediation for child access issues. But the, the key thing to remember is that's unique. Most of the time, lawyers are going to be present. Lawyers come often in family cases on the property. But, you know, it's not unusual in the family law arena not to have the attorneys present. So having them let the clients know this is your best case, your worst case before they come in allows the parties to kind of move the the child access issues around, you know, on the playing field to see what you can come up with. So how often do you uh, get to a successful agreement in these things? It would be in civil cases, I would say there's a high percentage of chance to get it settled, especially if there's no underlying relationship. It's a one and done contract. Sure. There are more emotional issues at play and a lot more about relationships, you know, a partnership of you know, two people who went to school together and thought this would be a great idea to do a company, you know, an agreement, you know, what do they want after it? Are they all really best friends with everybody? So, you know, they don't want to lose the underlying relationship. Those tend to be a little bit more of a work in progress. So I gather it it can be a process where you, you know, the expectation isn't I'm rolling into a negotiation or a mediation and it's always going to get just done. Sometimes it probably takes different steps as people get more realistic expectations. Exactly. As they hear more, as they learn more, and they brainstorm more, there's a greater chance they could come back for another session. You know, Or what I've heard from a lot of attorneys is the outline or the basic concepts that are reached in mediation are developed. And at some point before trial, a resolution is obtained based on the original outline from a mediation. I'm intrigued that you're doing this in conjunction with a psychologist. Is this somebody who you've had occasion to work with in the past? Yes, yes. Gina, I've worked with her. She does, I don't know if she's still doing them, but she did custody evaluations. She's worked with me on presentations. She and I originally started doing a a training for parenting coordination, which is another alternate dispute resolution process for parents. It's kind of mediation on steroids. And we're still giving that training to this day. We've included more people to really expand the knowledge base being shared. But she's excellent. She is a... Where is she located? She is in Columbia. Okay. um, At Santoro Psychology. I think, Psychology Services. Okay. Gina Santoro, and she's wonderful. She's actually going to appear by Zoom when we're down at the beach because she has so much going on with her work with kids and with parents. So do you two see things in a similar way, or are there divergences in how you think and approach things? The answer is, I think there is a difference in our approach, but what we really appreciate about each other is we learn from each other. In other words, it can't just be a, like a therapeutic, so what do you think? So what do you think kind of concept? It's more of, you know, this needs to get done, especially in a court-ordered setting. How are we going to best serve the people in the room? And as you noted with the reptile, that's a psychological neuroscience concept that is how to use how our brain is structured 
to work for the benefit of who's using it. And that's what I learned from Gina a lot on how to deal with those issues. Difficult personalities, which we get in any aspect of life, and more so, I think, in, in litigated situations. It's really about how do you work with difficult people? What are you looking for to understand where they're coming from and how can you use that information? So is there a different approach because of the nature of her professional training as opposed to yours, or do you find that you kind of have common denominators? Well, we do have some common denominators, but I think just based on our background, she comes from a more therapeutic concept, so a, a slower, more let them engage versus me engaging process, whereas I, as an attorney, oftentimes will shift to the more problem-solving or bargaining type of mediation to because the goal is to get things done. The truth in mediation is the goal shouldn't be to get things done. The goal should be to get the people to narrow the issues and really figure out what works for them. It could include something as simple as dealing with a non-financial, you know, an apology. I'm really sorry I, my car slammed into yours, you know, or I'm sorry I didn't hear you say X, Y, and Z, so my expectations were different. Those are things that you can get in a mediation that you cannot get in a more formal adversarial process. I'm intrigued that things like that can be consequential in negotiation. You have to realize that there are things like venting that can occur in a negotiation, even if it's not in a mediated setting with a neutral third party. And lawyers sitting in a four-way or five-way meeting or however it works could use these skill sets to kind of really gauge the room and see how different questions might elicit different information and different ideas that would allow for a resolution where the other side might think this is never going to work. I don't know why we're even sitting here. How open are lawyers to that in your experience? More and more. I think more and more when I want to enhance their experiences in their career paths, as well as enhance the experience of their clients. So the less stressful, less litigated processes, I think, have become more and more attractive to lawyers. I regret to say that we are on the edge of running out of time, but I very much appreciate your coming back on. Five-year anniversary of your first appearance and look forward to seeing you in Ocean City if, unfortunately, you and I are scheduled to give seminars at exactly the same time. So I know, I know. I'm sure we will see each other in other capacities. We can, I will watch yours on video. Okay, sounds All right. good. Yours as well. Thank you. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.